Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In most episodes of this podcast, we slow walk through Dante's masterwork of comedy, and we're still going to kind of do that. This episode of the podcast is an interview with J. Simon Harris, whose new Terzarima translation into English of Dante's Inferno is just now published. He's going to actually read for us Guido de Montefeltro's big monologue from the 27th canto of Inferno. That's where we have been. We've been down in this eighth evil pouch with Ulysses and now a second flame, Guido. We heard all about Romagna's troubles in the last episode, and now Guido is back up at bat to speak, and he is going to tell of both his life and his own death. We get his death just as we got Ulysses' death. Here's how the podcast is going to work. There's going to be an interview with J. Simon Harris talking about him and his work with Dante and how uh, he comes at it from a very interesting perspective. We'll talk all about that. Then he's going to read the big passage, Canto 27, lines 58 through 129, which make up Guido's second speech. Remember, Guido already comes on the scene and asks, is Romagna at war or peace? Dante gives that wild answer full of heraldic symbolism about the various tyrants of Romagna. And then Guido answers back with his life story. That's what J. Simon Harris is going to read for us at the end of this podcast. Let's just start out with the interview with J. Simon Harris on his new translation of Dante's Inferno. We are so lucky to be joined today by J. Simon Harris, whose new translation of, new to us and hardly new to him, new to us translation of the Inferno is out. Thank you so much for being on the podcast for this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be on again. I'm very happy. You you are a double guest, which I think, I don't know what, it probably gets you up into Purgatorio already. Yeah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> As a double guest on this podcast. So, so you have recently just published your translation of Inferno. And I have to ask you before we even talk about the translation itself, why did you undertake the sheer effort of translating the Inferno? Yeah, I mean, that's a question I got a lot, I guess, um, while doing it. Some people would be like, why? Why are you doing this? It's never been translated before. So, <laughs> A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, the first thing is that I, I encountered it just in a class, like a lot of people do, in an undergraduate class. And I I really loved it. I really, I'd heard the name and everything, but I knew nothing about it. But I was really big into Greek mythology and, well, in Roman mythology. And so um, that was what drew me into it at first, that and the form of it, the, the fact that I knew that in Italian it rhymed. So yeah, I just asked a professor or my professor if I could do a canto, uh, translate a canto instead of doing a final exam. And he was like, yeah, that'd be great. Oh my God. Back when I was an academic, I would have been like, no way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he was a he was a great professor. <laughs> so, I, guess I, I was the kind nobody wanted, but I was like, no, you're taking the final like everybody else. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, wow. So you translated that for your final exam, and that started this process. And um, before we get into the process itself, um, what is it that you actually do for a living, as opposed to this <laughs> translation of Dante's Inferno? 
Yeah, they don't pay me to do this. Um, no. So I, I'm a scientist in my day job. So I, I have a PhD in material science, and now I'm doing postdoc work. I, I research um, basically applying like AI to analyzing electron micrographs, which are like pictures taken by an electron microscope. It's it's really cool, like amazing what these things can do. That is astounding. And it is very cool what these things can do. Well, that is a long way. Well, maybe it's a short way to Dante's Inferno, but Dante wouldn't know about <laughs> it. But it is, seems a long way from Dante's Inferno. So you told a story on Twitter a while back that you applied to a creative writing program a long while ago with this translation. And that led me to think about how long you've been working on this. So how long have you been working on this? Yeah, a long time. Um, so I've, um, let's see. So like I said, I first encountered it as an undergraduate. So that was like 2000, I want to say 10. And uh, that was the first seed of working on it. And then since then, I've been working on it, uh, you know, on and off. I mean, I did other things in the meantime, but I've basically been continuously working on it since then. Wow. And so 12 years, let's say. Like, yeah, about 12, about 12 years, yeah. For the sake of simplicity. Um, and I, I published uh, on my 35th birthday, you know, so you that's for, the, fortuitous. Of the journey of your life. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, um, can we say, you hope it's the middle of the journey of your life, or maybe... <laughs> Given yeah. life expectancies now, you should have at least delayed till 42, just on the hope for, yeah, yeah. for more than... Uh, hopefully I'll make it, make it longer than Dante anyway, I hope. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so tell us about your translation, because your translation is rather astounding in that it tries to hold the Terzarima, the original rhyming scheme of the Inferno intact. And there are very few people who do this. Let me, let me just say before I, uh, I jump to your answer, let me just say that back in the day when I was an academic, I used to use the old John Chardy translation of Inferno. And I did it because I thought uh, Chardy was a poet and he had a poetic sensibility about Inferno, but he also tried to keep some of the rhyme. What does he make? The first and third lines rhyme of each tercet or something like That's that. That's right. Yeah. And of course, his translation is, oh, dare I say it, gruesomely inaccurate in places. <laughs> uh, but I would still use it for it because it had some sort of poetic feel for it. But you've undertaken this thing in a in a full-on exploration of Terzarima. What is that like? Or what was that like to try to do it? Um, well, I mean, that was one of the things that drew me into it. So I like writing in form and, uh, you know, even when I write my own poetry. So one of the things that I sort of realized when we were reading it for class was like, you know, the Italian is in this amazing uh, rhyme and meter scheme and um, none of the translations really either represent it well or represent it at all. Um, not to say that there haven't been like, you know, decent uh, rhyming versions, but um, no, so I thought it'd be fun so to many. try. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, not so many. I know of a rhyming translation in French. Um, but French is an easier language to rhyme than English. Um, and it's a lot closer to Italian, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you get 5,000 words that end in de pro. And so <laughs> you have a lot of choices in French. 
Uh, but in English, English is tough in the rhyming departments. And, yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the task of turning Dante's Florentine, medieval Florentine into English in Terzarima must have seemed overwhelming at certain moments. Definitely. I mean, there's there's parts even now, like looking ahead where I'm like, oh, when I get to paradise, how am I going to do this, <laughs> this part? Right. But um, so well, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But um, part of the my solution has been to use, you know, use slant rhymes um, and also use redundant rhymes if I need to. So there may be a, an, an official word for that. I don't know. I call it redundant rhymes if I rhyme the same word with itself. Uh, so um <laughs> it's okay so <laughs> in case um you're listening to this and you don't know a slant rhyme is a rhyme that perhaps is close but not necessarily and you can slant rhyme in different ways uh in english you can slant rhyme off consonants or off vowel sounds or off vowel consonant collections so you can actually uh, you can make a case that slate and slade are slant rhymes off each other, even though they don't yeah. formally, you know, Renaissance style rhyme. They're they're close. They're for Emily Dickinson. They're close enough, so they're close enough for the. Rest. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. If it's good enough for Emily Dickinson, then that should be good enough for anybody. Um, and. The, the way I like to think of it, too, is people, you know, if you listen to a lot of popular songs, you think of the the words they're using as rhyming. And a lot of times it's technically a slant rhyme, but it sounds like a rhyme to the, you know, to the ear, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, part of the reason for that is because, you know, doing exact rhymes would be so impossible to do that with a translation and have it be faithful to the Italian. And then part of it, too, is that in English, when you have those perfect rhymes, it sort of, it sort of gets a little sing-songy, and it doesn't quite match with what Dante's doing in, in Florentine, or, you know, in, in Tuscan. So he, he, it sounds very natural, even though he's rhyming. Mm -hmm. You know, the language isn't forced. It is, doesn't sound sing-songy. I mean, it's, it's too simplistic to say, but there is a reason why... English poetry kind of begins as an alliterative form, a repetition of initial consonants rather than a strictly rhyming form, because Germanic languages, well, it's easier to match up first consonants than it is necessarily to rhyme words off each other. Um, yeah, yeah. The Romance language kind of rhyming system. In your translation, did you were did you feel bound by the rhythm of Dante by the the syllable rhythm of the lines or did you feel the freedom to break that um so i i used what i think is sort of the equivalent in english so i i more or less follow like a loose iambic pentameter okay. and the reason i say that's kind of the equivalent in english is because like if you think of sonnets in italian they have usually like 11 syllable lines like dante's in the comedy um and then in English, you know, correspondingly, sonnets tend to be in iambic pentameter. So uh, that's more or less what I went for. But I wasn't like trying to match like beat for beat Dante's uh, meter necessarily. Right. right. It would be very difficult to do. I just read a study 
of someone who basically a study of all the 13 syllable lines in comedy and the lines that break out to 13 syllables. And this person was arguing that there's some kind of logical extension amongst the 13 lines, 13 syllable lines across the whole work. It seemed almost impossible for my brain to comprehend. So it was like my trying to, you know, my trying to figure out quantum mechanics. Uh, It was just almost beyond my ability to understand it. But they were there was this claim that there's an intentionality in the number of syllables in the lines. And it sounds like that you were kind of thought trying to follow in that pattern in some way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. You're about to give us your reading of Guido de Montefeltro's giant monologue that occurs in Canto 27, your translation of it. And um, it is gloriously more mellifluous than my translations of it could ever be. And you're going to read that for us as part of this podcast. So let's talk just a minute about Guido and Ulysses. What's your take on the problems of the two of them down here in this eighth evil pouch of the of the sins of fraud why do they get paired up together that's a tough i mean you could write so much on that right i i think that with without guido um for one thing you you wouldn't know what to do with ulysses as a reader uh so like in canto 11 when virgil's sort of giving out the map of inferno right and he names for some reason just decides to name eight of the 10 pouches of Malibulge. And then he's like, and so on or whatever. So <laughs> uh, this is one of the ones that he doesn't name. Uh, so when you encounter Ulysses, it's not clear what his, you know, what he's there for, what he's being punished for necessarily. So one thing is you find that out when you encounter Guido. I mean, the, the devil who comes for him says, you know, he's here. He uh, was it gave gave fraudulent counsel more or less. It's it it is absolutely true. I mean, I I think I said this in the podcast that if the if we stopped with Ulysses and just moved on to the ninth pouch, I think I think every reader of Inferno would be lost as to what just happened because that Ulysses story is so overwhelming. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's intentional too because you you get swept away by it and it, you're you're almost caught up and ready to sort of follow Ulysses and then and then Guido shows up, you know. Right. And um, the the podcast episode that begins Canto Twenty Seven for us on Walking with Dante, I talked a lot about the brass bull, the Sicilian brass bull as a warning from Dante to himself of not getting burned alive in your own creation, not getting set on fire <laughs> <I like that. laughs> by, the, by the creation that you've made since the maker of the Sicilian bull is the first one burned alive. And I think you're right. There is this swept away quality about Ulysses and also the sheer nightmare of picturing drowning faces at the end of that canto. And now suddenly you're out to Guido who is such a comedic, strange, a bit sniveling figure, um, desperately wanting to be as great as Ulysses, but doesn't really rank up with you. Yeah, overshadowed by Ulysses for sure. Poor Diomedes, while we're saying it, poor old Diomedes, doesn't, don't you, I mean, at least Paolo gets to cry with Francesca. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Diomedes is just, 
I don't know what. We don't even know. He's just there. He's just there. We <laughs> at the end, we know that Ulysses' flame is upright, but we don't know what's happened to Diomedes' flame. Is it drooped over? Is it up? I, I'd like a clue about right. Diomedes. I feel I feel bad for him. Somebody should write. At least it's... At least his brains aren't being devoured. That's a, a reference to later, but uh, later in the poem. <laughs> Somebody should write the story of Diomedes or the poem of Diomedes or being caught in a flame. Wow, oh, that's a great poem, right? Being caught in a flame with Ulysses for the rest of eternity in Diomedes' voice. <laughs> it would be a fabulous thing. Um, uh, Guido is such an interesting figure did you find any specific problems in translating his long monologue um as it comes out do you remember any specific problems you encountered <laughs> there was a a uh, i have i have the text in front of me and there's a, a couple places where the rhymes were difficult so i could just point those out um like as an example um online 89 there's uh the rhymes between acre sacred and meager in my translation and in italian acre and sacred correspond to those words i think meager may actually also but that took a long time for me to feel satisfied with that rhyme uh and there's some other ones similar to that there's a lot of uh, uh two syllable rhyming words in this uh in my version of this yeah which is it's... It's something that is, I would say, a deficit in the podcast Walking with Dante is I don't deal with any of the rhyming issues, which is why it's great to see you on the podcast again with your translation, because the rhyming issues are crucial to the poem itself, uh, and they're crucial to the meaning of the poem itself. Of oh, this, this is for long ahead of us, but when we get to that first canto of Purgatorio and Dante arrives on the shore of Mount Purgatory, that end sequence rhymes of that first canto are the exact end sequence rhymes of Ulysses monologue. So there's clearly yeah. a correspondence going on between the two of them that is very bound fast by the poet. Well, Dante is like very attuned to that and he uses that, that technique a lot. And I think part, partly you can see that just poets of his time, like the poets in his circle were kind of attuned to that. So like, you know, in the Vita Nuova, the first poem that appears that he, I think he wrote when he was 18, he sent it out to other poets. And then Guido Cavalcanti wrote his uh, response to the poem and it rhymes with Dante's poem. So it not only rhymes, but it rhymes with Dante's poem. It has the same rhymes. Uh, so there's like, that's kind of what poets were like doing with each other, you know? Uh, and so when Dante repeats a rhyme, or especially repeats a word in a rhyme place, like he does it on purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, that is definitely an interesting aspect and you can pull out a lot of meaning from uh, places where Dante repeats around. Some, you know, you mentioned it in your podcast in some places like the, um, the rhyme that gets repeated uh, in, in three sort of wrathful examples, right? Like yep. Capinus and uh, yeah. I yep. forget. I forget the other two places off the top yeah. of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does, and it's Dante is extraordinarily attuned to the rhyme because it is part of his poetic craft. I mean, um, you know, uh, it may have fallen out of a lot of modern parlance, and it may have fallen out of a lot of modern vocabulary with po poetry, but Dante is extraordinarily attuned to that craft because he's a poet, which in his day means that the words do have to shape to form. Um, in some specific way. 
Okay, so before we get to your reading of your translation of Montefeltro's outrageous monologue, tell us where we could find your translation of Inferno. So right now it's only on Amazon. So you can search for it. You can even Google, you know, Harris Inferno translation and it'll pop up. Um, I'm working on getting it uh, available to broader distribution. Um, so hopefully like it'll be available for bookstores to put on their websites or even purchase and stuff like that. I should say too, that it, it is available on some other Amazon domains, like the, the UK Amazon and Canadian Amazon and stuff. So that's good. <laughs> so, so it is on amazon.co.uk and amazon.ca. So that's great. And that's right. In the US. Okay. Well, Thank you, J. Simon Harris, so much for being a part of this podcast. And thank you for the monologue you're about to read to us, Guido's unbelievable and overwhelming self-justification and ultimate damnation. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Okay, without any further ado, let us then have J. Simon Harris read his own Terzarima translation of Guido's monumental monologue, Inferno, Canto 27, lines 58 through 129. The fire roared a while, as fires do, and then the pointed flame tip back and forth began to move, and with this breath it blew. If I believe that my response were for a man who might return to the world, then I would stay this flame without a quiver more. But since none ever has returned alive from this abyss, if I hear true reports, without fear of infamy, I reply, I was a man of arms, and then of the cord believing with the cord to make amends, and my belief would be fulfilled for sure if it were not for the high priest, damn him, who pulled me back into my former sins. And how and why I want you to attend. While I was still a form of bones and skin my mother gave to me, my deeds and works were not the lions, but the foxes then. The cunning ploys and ways to be covert, I knew them all, and I so used their art that it resounded to the ends of the earth. But when I saw myself come to that part of my old age, where one should furl the sails and gather in the ropes to disembark, what once had pleased me now would only ail, and penitent and shriven, I gave in. Ah! Woe, alas, and it would have availed. The prince of the new Pharisees, who then was waging war beside the Lateran, and not with Jews, nor with the Saracens, for all his enemies were Christian, and not one of them had been to conquer Acre, nor were they merchants in the Sultan's land, neither the highest office nor the sacred orders did he regard, and not that belt which used to make its wearers be more meagre. But as Constantine sought Sylvester's help within Soracte to treat his leprosy, so he sought me out, for a maester as well, to treat the fever of his pride, and he demanded that I offer him my counsel. But I was mute, 
for his words seemed drunk to me. And then he said, Your heart should not be doubtful. I absolve you henceforth. But you teach me how I might bring on Penestrino's downfall. To lock and unlock heaven I hold the keys, as you well know. And there are two keys, then, my predecessor held with no esteem. Then I was led by his grave arguments to where the worst advice was not to speak at all. And so I said, Father, because you cleanse me of that sin to which I now must fall, a lengthy promise only shortly kept will make you triumph on the high seat with all. Francis came for me after I was dead. But one of the black cherubim came out. Don't! Take him! Don't you do me wrong, it said. He must come down among my minions now, for he gave counsel which was fraudulent, and I've been at his hair from then till now. One cannot be absolved without repent and can't repent and will the same result by contradiction, which has no consent. How I was shaken up, oh, miserable, when he took hold of me and said, Perhaps you didn't think I'd be so logical. He took me down to Minos, and he wrapped his tail eight times around his solid center, and after biting it in his great wrath, said it's the thieving fire for this sinner. For which, here will you see me, I'm forlorn and clothed like this, wandering. I am bitter. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you got a kick out of hearing a translation that was far more poetic than anything I ever put together. It's also nice to hear from other people working with Dante. If you wouldn't mind, would you subscribe to this podcast and would you rate it, particularly if you're on an Apple platform or on Audible in any country? I know this podcast has a lot of listeners across Europe, in the UK, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, in Germany. If you're in other Audible or other Apple podcast platforms besides the one in the US, a rating would do wonders. Thank you very much for doing that. And come back next time, because next time I'm going to carry on with my very work, <laughs> oh gosh, workaday translation of Guido's monologue. And we'll talk about all of the implications of this most strange speech inside of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante, and I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.